Good afternoon and welcome to the business community on Callan FM. With me, Heather Noble. And me, Tracy Jones. And this week, our topical discussion is prompted by an article I read way back in April in the Financial Times, and it's about the business of funerals. Now, in April, it was announced that the UK Competition and Markets Authority was doing a full-scale investigation into the funeral sector. And uh, the article that I'm referring to, um, it's actually written by a lady called Poppy Mardol, and she runs a business called Poppy's Funerals. Uh, it's a very well-written article, and it highlighted a number of things about the funeral business that I wasn't aware of. Now, I forwarded this on to you, Heather. What did you think when I suggested we look into funerals this month, this week? Well, I didn't think it was the jolliest of subjects to um, to be investigating, but it is a kind of closed shop, isn't it? It's quite difficult to find out stuff about it, I guess, unless you're in it. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't think whoopee, but it's actually quite interesting. And it's worth around a billion pounds in the UK every year. Yeah. So, um, and they about, obviously, COVID to one side, around 600,000 funerals taking place each year. So, uh, yeah, it, it, wasn't, it, it wasn't an obvious place to go. But what, what in that article particularly resonated with you or, or captured your imagination? Well, I suppose it was really why uh, the Competition and Markets Authority would do this investigation. What is it about the sector that was so worrying, which uh, would cause them to obviously spend a lot of time and money doing an investigation? And I found it quite shocking, actually, that the the prices year on year have increased for funerals for 14 years in a row at between, I think it's 6%. Um, and 6 to 8%, I saw, 8%, yeah. yeah. Twice the rate of inflation. And the UK national average for the cost of a funeral in 2018 was £4,271. That's the average. But that wasn't the worst thing. So the price is going up at twice the rate of inflation without any real reason as to why that would be the case. But also the fact that I didn't realise that because I'm in a very fortunate position that I've not had to organise a funeral. But what I didn't realise was how difficult it is to get prices. A lot of the funeral uh, directors don't have their prices on their website and that, no. that all of their prices are sort of like kept quiet until you're actually in that position. And one of the reasons why this investigation was launched was because uh, the CMA recognised that the customer's in a very vulnerable position at that point, And it's not a great time to be thinking about or negotiating prices. So I was actually quite shocked at that. And it did seem unethical, I have to say. Did, did you pick up on the same sort of thing, Heather? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what we have to, what we must say is that, you know, not all funeral directors are um, unethical or, you know, taking advantage of a situation. But I think it's, I mean, I have had to organise a, a few funerals, um, most recently my father's, which was about five, five and a half years ago. And I can remember my brother and I going to a local undertaker's and and they were, they were brilliant, actually. Yeah. Um, and we because of the type of people that we were when we were looking at the caskets for example where you you know they put a book in front of you and you start looking at them we were confident enough to say look we just want we just want a bog standard 
you know, we don't want anything flashy. It's going to be burnt for goodness sake. So we want something that looks okay in the hearse, but is, you know, we're not spending mega bucks on that because it's it wasn't important to us. Yeah. Whereas for other people, it might be important. And I think the big challenge with this whole pricing thing is I saw a statistic that said that actually with the prices that um, that you've just quoted, for about 40% of the pop, um, for a lot of the population, that could be 40% of their earnings. So if you haven't, if the person who's who's um, deceased hasn't got a funeral plan, and there's a whole load of conversation about that, and then haven't left money, you've got to try and find this money from somewhere um, at a time when, as you say, you're feeling really vulnerable and you want to do the best for the individual. So, yeah, there's a few ethical issues there, I think. And I think a lot of people uh, potentially don't consider these sorts of options in advance. And so the situation you're placed in when you've got to make that decision is less than ideal in most cases. You know, you don't know what your choices are. You don't know whether that's legal or, or whether it's allowed or whether that's normal. And so, you know, if you're guided in a certain direction, the risk is that you will actually just agree to everything that's suggested. The CMA have published their provisional conclusions. They did this in the middle of August. Um, however, they, they didn't take it as far as was perhaps expected. And they've said that um, it, it's obviously been affected by the pandemic, but they have made some proposals. They stopped short of putting a price cap on funerals. And they did say that they were going to continue to actively monitor the funeral sector. So they've still got to be on their guard. Um, but they want to make sure that the information and prices and packages and services on offer are going to be publicised and available for customers and a lot more accessible than they currently are. Uh, I read an article on the BBC that said that the price caps have been shelved for the time being and major plans for overhaul of the sector have been ruled out because of COVID-19. The thing I got most from the article was like a sense that the sector is ripe for disruption. Did you pick up on that? Yes. And, and some of that, I think, is around people's... Um, changing faith you know people who don't have faith um who want a green burial you know i mean there are people who um want cremation but so private cremation where it might literally just be a very small number of people that attend um, big funerals for some people are not important they might have a small private ceremony and then have a celebration of life people might want to conduct the service themselves so they you know they either literally just want to turn up at the crematoria um and have the the cremation done or they want um they want they don't want a pastor they don't want a, a priest they you know they don't want anybody to uh, or humanist you know so lots of changes now because people are a bit more aware of what they can and can't do um whereas once upon a time it was that's what you're getting that you know that's what you have you have three cars you know, you have this coffin, you have that coffin, you have the burial, you have the the, brick, the vicar, um, and you have a bun fight, as we call it in my family, um, at the local pub. I think that's all changing. I think that's all changing. Yeah. I, th I think we've found with with sectors that have been disrupted in the past, it's often in um, in the scenarios where there's some big players who've perhaps become a bit complacent. 
and then they, they leave gaps, don't they, for somebody to come in and offer a, a meaningful or personal uh, approach to the provision of that service or product. And I think that's potentially what we're seeing now springing up in the funeral sector. It'll be an interesting development to watch. In our news section this week, I just want to start with one story that caught my eye. I know I talk about them a lot, but this is IKEA. Um, once again, they're rethinking things. And we've talked about them, you know, when we had the whole you could go, you could go and look, view stuff and not buy it. And you, all, all of their different sort of delivery um, things. They are now uh, going to buy back used furniture from people that have bought furniture from Ikea okay. and they're going to resell it as second hand. What a good idea. Absolutely. They're trialling it in a few stores. Um, it's going to run between the 24th of November and the, a few countries, actually. It's going to run between the 24th of November to the 3rd of December. When they buy back from you, you get vouchers that you can spend in Ikea stores. So how do they get the furniture back? Do they come and collect it? Do you have to take it? You have to. I, th I think you have to take it. And I'm thinking um, about some some articles. If you take them apart, they potentially lose their integrity. So are they limiting the items you can take? Well, what they are. Well, they, they don't appear to be. What they are saying is it has to come. It has to be returned fully assembled. Right. OK. Yeah, that so, makes sense. You, yeah. So that it's, you know, it is a full chair or table or whatever bed. Um, but but the returns are quite generous. Items being returned as new, 50 percent of the original price will be given back. Wow. Okay. Very good items with minor scratches, 40 percent and well used furniture with several scratches will get 30 percent. Well, that, that's really generous, isn't it? I would expect less than 30 percent. Yeah. And they say it's part of their their plan to be a fully circular and climate positive business by 2030. I, I don't know what happens if you turn up with something and they say they don't want it. Now you've gone all the way to Warsaw and. Um... That, that is the thing, isn't it? Because it's quite difficult to transport or even to move a full wardrobe that a complete wardrobe not a full mm. one not taking your clothes i mean a, a a built wardrobe i mean i i wouldn't be able to get it down the stairs so that's a, a conundrum isn't it yeah and okay i mean you know maybe if we were being a bit cynical it might be that on the face of it it sounds amazing but then in practical terms it's not likely yeah. to happen most of these items have been delivered flat pack in which case you can carry it upstairs flat and then you build it don't you yeah yeah i think i think the, the sentiment is great but yeah. um yeah how it will work out in in practical terms i don't know but i just love i just love the way that they seem to just you know disrupt and rethink and rethink stuff so um yeah, so I thought that was an interesting one. What what um what has caught your eye this week, Tracy? Well, it's the Bank of England on Monday asking other banks um how ready they are for zero or negative interest rates. Um and it's going to consider taking rates below zero. I've seen some graphs from the Bank of England, and the prediction is that um there's going to be a bit of a 
a dip, a bit of a U-shaped graph it is, um, with the lowest point being about two years hence and starting to come back up. But that low point is negative. So we've got the negative interest rates, which we've talked about on the show before. Um, quite an interesting concept. Um, if you go into the detail, you lend somebody, some, you, you place some money um, in a bank to save and then you yeah. take it out and you've got less money than you put in. That's essentially a negative interest rate. And what you're paying for is essentially the service of them looking after the money for you. Right. And so, it but, it safe. so does it work the other way around? If you've got an interest only mortgage of a hundred thousand pounds and you're, you, you know, you're, you're, you've been paying X rate of, of interest, are they going to be paying you? Nice try, Heather, but what do you think? <laughs> and it's based mm. on risk, really. Um, a, a lot, of, particularly for other financial institutions, have to spread the risk of where, where their money is placed. And so in, in order to, to make sure that your portfolio is evenly split, you, you've got to put it a, 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 across a number of providers. And some of those providers don't necessarily want your money. So in order for you to encourage them to take your money, they, they're going to charge you for it. Yeah. It's a, it's a big issue for financial institutions. I mean, the interest rates at the moment are so low for consumers anyway. Um, you, you probably wouldn't notice a massive difference. But for banks, it, it's a big concern because they have got to place their money somewhere. And then if, if that means to place it somewhere safe, they end up coming out with less. That's exactly what they're going to have to do. But it's interesting because the, the Bank of England, they're actually asking them if there are any technological challenges to negative interest rates. Now, I've not thought about this before, but it's a bit like the whole um, year 2000. Um, oh, the millennium bug. The millennium bug. Yeah, yeah, it's like, actually, can the banking systems and a lot of the financial institutions have got some very cronky IT systems, just saying, can they cope with a minus sign in front of the interest rates? So they've set a deadline of the 12th of November for the banks to respond. Then they're going to be essentially making another announcement, um, a policy announcement around about that time as well. So, but yeah, that, that was my big story of the week. So enough about negative interest rates, Heather. What else have you got in other news? Well, I found a little article on LinkedIn that got me thinking, and I'll be interested to hear what you feel about this. It's written by a guy called Peter Cronenbroke, and he's asking the question, is it okay to use emojis at work? Oh, is the classic, it depends. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. So what would it, what would it take for you to think if I were contacting you and I put, no, like not that you know me, if I, if I didn't know you very well and I contacted you via email and I put an emoji in my email, what would you think? I think, it I mean, obviously it would depend on what the emoji was. Which emoji? Yes. I think, I think you, <laughs> um, but if you did a smiley face or something, yeah. Um, hmm. I don't mind emojis in emails personally. I might be surprised if somebody had never spoken to me before. I don't think I'd be offended. Um, no, okay. you know, sm I think smiley faces is, is a way of getting 
tone across, which can sometimes be lost in, in just words in, a, in an email. I think text can sometimes be misconstrued. So I think if you if you use an emoji, it can actually help you with nuances of what you're trying to say. I think particularly in text messages um, and WhatsApp messages and stuff like that, because I mean, once upon a time, I would never WhatsApp with a client, but now clients seem to want to WhatsApp. So you go, oh, okay. But um, yeah, I think it can uh, it it can help, as you say, because we all remember times when people used to text us, okay, or can you phone John? You know, and Ooh, it's like, you know, what's the right, attitude? Yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Whereas if they put, can you phone John and a wink or a, you know, a smiley face or something, you'd go, oh yeah, okay. Did you just okay. do a thumbs up then, Heather? I did do a thumbs up. Yeah, we're on the radio. We're on the aren't radio. We? Yeah. <laughs> Well, you saw it and that's all that matters. <laughs> so what did the article say? Well, the, the article was asking people for their input, really, about what they what they felt. And um, they actually talk about um, what well, the golden rule. The guy says the golden rule is if in doubt, don't do it. So that's his recommendation. But then he does go on to say that when we look at um, communication in general and with 50, over 55 percent of, of communication being down to body language, once you remove that from the equation, these little things could be really helpful. And there were a few people who shared their views. But then somebody said um, perhaps more interesting is using emojis could be seen as being unprofessional but they've said, well, actually, the second aspect of this question is, what is professionalism? How do you measure professionalism? I could be hugely professional. Putting a smiley emoji at the end of my email or my text doesn't make me unprofessional, does it? Maybe does it? your profession is being an emoji designer as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think context is everything, isn't it? So I stand with my first answer. It depends. <laughs> The, the yeah I think it does and I, but I, I think the one thing that they did mention is and I thought it's quite funny um research your emojis because not all emojis mean what you think they mean <laughs> so just a word of warning to anybody who thinks great I've got permission you kind of haven't yeah I think one thing I would say is um it definitely does not depend is if you're sending uh, a job application no okay yeah yeah, I think I would be a bit shocked to receive. Um, it, it seems a little bit too intimate, well, yes. potentially, but other people might have different opinions on that. I'd be interested to know. And what about the little X at the end of a... I mean, I always, with friends, I always sign my name HX. But even I, when sometimes I'll get a message off somebody and I think, why have you put an X at the end of that? <laughs> I don't know you. There was a colleague at work was um, she was using Teams uh, chat with, with another colleague. She was working from home. It had gone past the time when she should be finished. So she was a little bit into home mode and she was mortified. She signed it off with her name and an X at the end. And I was with the colleague who received it. He, he suddenly guffawed when when her other email came Oh, my God, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to put an X at the end. I was just in home mode. <laughs> he hadn't even noticed the X, but on rereading it, she had and, and thought uh, it was inappropriate. <laughs>
You're listening to the business community on Calon FM. And just today, so we're recording this show on Tuesday. So at lunchtime, I attended Aaron and Partners HR Lunch Club. Now we've talked about their lunch clubs before, haven't we, Heather? Where we actually were served lunch. You know, in yes. the olden days when you could actually get in the same room as somebody and and have a buffet lunch. Yeah, we went to Mold. Did we go to Mold? The theatre in Mold. Yeah, theatre yeah. Clued it was. And we were, um, yeah, it was the first lunch club and actually the last face-to-face lunch club that we actually went to with them. <laughs> uh, but since then, I've attended a couple of online ones and I've enjoyed them. So the last one I did before this was on parental rights. And today's lunch club was an update on COVID, which was quite timely uh, given the announcements about the different tiers and they were also updating about um, the job support scheme which is replacing um, the job retention scheme so I'm um, a big shout out to the two presenters they were excellent as usual very well run um, technically they did have some problems with the um, presentation initially but that was soon resolved um, so Debbie Coyne did the first bit where she was talking about um, the different rules around the tiers which is so complicated to try and uh, to get your head around because it's different everywhere around the country and then Tori Shepherd did a very, very good talk. The only my only criticism would be there was so much detail in it that I would have liked her to slow down a little bit. But obviously they had the the time limit of an hour on, on the webinar. Um, but she was providing some real good details on how the um, the job support scheme would work and actually using some figures um, so you could apply. Um, apply some of the formulas to it so it was really really good Uh, what I thought was particularly good and I I, I would give um, a commendation for this is that the chat was open and on these previous lunch clubs you get a couple of questions on the chat but obviously because you know there's so many questions around the situation at the moment you know and how the scheme is going to work and what about track and trace and and all of this and employer responsibilities and employee responsibilities that there were a lot of questions in the chat and fair dues a young uh, I'm saying young gentleman I don't know he could be old sorry a gentleman called Michael was responding to them and he was aiming to get the answers to all the questions there and then I was really impressed so I, I asked one particular question when I first posed it it didn't know the answer I'll look into that and while answering the other questions there was clearly some research going on in the background Um, and he was able to answer my question fully and clearly having actually gone to the relevant government's website got the information and then um, relayed it back to me through the chat portal so that for me was the highlight because that's what you sort of miss with the face-to-face ones isn't it the opportunity to to ask your questions about your organization and if it was just a straight webinar you could get that from anywhere couldn't you you could look it up on the websites and you could read it and it's pretty much the same but the ability to then ask the questions in that forum is where it really adds value to me and so I I think uh, for the two that I've done um, in the last month or so then I'd say that they've done really really well with that you were supposed to attend Heather weren't you and it's a shame you didn't I think you would have enjoyed it 
Yes, no, I was really disappointed, but I something came up and I just couldn't. But that sounds like a really good way of dealing with the questions, because sometimes the questions just float up and down in the chat. And then the speaker at the end goes back through the questions. And that kind of doesn't work sometimes because no. things have moved on a bit or they miss something. I think so it's really something. important. Yeah, if if anybody out there is considering doing a webinar with a chat facility, having somebody manning the chat facility so that yeah. the presenter isn't distracted by it. I think that's yeah. so important. And, and that's really shown up in there because the presenters were just focused on their delivery. The questions were dealt with by somebody else. It was perfect. Yeah. And your question might, might not be a question that somebody else is interested in. So actually, when you're trying to keep it to an hour, you know, he, he could be fielded. That sounds like a brilliant way of doing it. I've not seen anybody do it like that before. So that's, yeah, that does sound good. Uh, because I couldn't go, um, obviously I've let the side down because we were meant to be having a nice long discussion about it, not least what we were eating for our lunch while we were attending, which in my case would have been a banana and a satsuma. Um, so I happen to have a book that has, another book that has arrived with me. Um, I think it arrived yesterday. It must have been yesterday or Saturday, but maybe. Um, and it's a book that I, I'm, a, I'm really into buying secondhand books now. I, whenever I see a book, I'll, where can I get that a pre-owned version? Um, mainly because I spend so much money on books. Anyway, this is a book that I had heard of. And then I happened upon it again. Somebody mentioned it. And it's a book by a guy called Patrick Lencioni. And it's called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And what you would like about this book Tracy is that it is written as a fable Ooh. it's called a leadership fable you'd love you'd love it a lady called Catherine who takes on a role a senior role and it talks about the 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 business that she's inherited where it is the team that she's inherited the journey that they go through activity that they do off-site to try and consolidate and think about the way that they work together a uh, chapter about egos and how you deal with those. You know, so it, it just takes you on this journey. So it's very much um, a tangible story, a tangible progression. But you don't like stories quite as much as me. So is this book appealing to you? Well, um, it, where it's appealing to me, because I'm the, about the instant gratification, aren't I? At the back, <laughs> there's a whole section on the model which are the five dysfunctions. And so he talks about them in more detail. Um, and in a nutshell, they are absence of trust, fear of conflict, lack of commitment, avoidance of accountability and inattention to results. And he, ex he expands on those. So essentially, you, you've just got it down to five bullet points. Yeah. OK. Yeah. Well, yeah, you, yeah, exactly. That's and that, you know, that's the way I am. Um, <laughs> But then beyond that, the book actually gives you a, a little questionnaire that you can use. And the person who owned this book previously, Karen Duck. Um, uh, hello, Karen, if you're listening, I don't know where you're from or who you are. Um, she has filled in the scores for her team. Uh, and that, so it's a bit like one of those quizzes in a, you know, a magazine where you total up your scores and it says, you know, mostly A's, mostly B's, you know, you'll marry a basity roller or whatever it might be. Um, so it's actually a practical part of the book that you can work with. What, what did Karen Duck think of her team? Uh, well, um, 
basically team members are passionate and unguarded in their discussion of issues sometimes team members call out one another's deficiencies or unproductive behaviors rarely um team members know about one another's personal lives and are comfortable discussing them usually so we go on team allergy team members challenge one another about their plans and approaches rarely so um yeah, so she ends up with um, absence of trust scores five. Oh, actually, they're fairly across the board. Um, fear of conflict is five. A score of three to five is probably an indication that the dysfunction needs to be addressed. Okay. <laughs> Six or seven uh, could be a problem. Eight or nine, not a problem. So I think she probably has been doing some work with her team. So I quite like that bit. So, um, yeah, so that's Patrick Lencioni. He's written several books um, and uh, it's the fable of lead a leadership fable. And it's called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And it is a New York Times bestseller. So um, I'll put a link to that along with, um, well, various things that we've talked about uh, on our website, which is the business community. On the business community this week, we're profiling Bob Iger. I'd never heard of him before. I seem to be admitting this an awful lot of the time, as if I've, I've never heard of these great business leaders until Heather mentions them, and that perhaps is true. Uh, it makes me realise that um, I don't know as much about the world of business as I perhaps thought I did, because Bob Iger is huge. He's the executive chairman of the Walt Disney Company and chairman of the board of directors. And he's due to step down. Um, his contract ends now on the 31st of December 2021. And it's got quite a history in leading this company. So actually, Heather, thank you, first of all, for introducing me to somebody who I should have known about. And secondly, for introducing me to somebody that's actually interesting. I found him absolutely fascinating and enjoyed what I read so far and also a couple of videos. So how did uh, Bob Iger come into to your realm of knowledge? Well, as so often is the case, we Google to find people that we haven't talked about before and we sometimes go down a rabbit hole. And I mean, it doesn't really come much bigger than um, the running Disney. I mean, everybody's heard of Disney, you know, it's a bit... Uh, you know it's like well why didn't we know about him but once we started to look into it it was clear that he is quite a guy he he took over a ceo and disney's net income was two and a half billion uh, and that was in 2004 was it i think and 16 years later uh, their turnover is um 10.4 billion he's he's made some quite impressive acquisitions in that time um and and just reading on the face of it, the acquisitions, it's like, oh, yeah, they're quite big. But having seen a video of him talk about these acquisitions, they seemed bigger because he had to negotiate. He had to create a relationship with the people he was buying these companies off. And I hadn't actually realised that from just reading his biog on the Disney website. So it says... Um, he bought Pixar in 2006, Marvel in 2009, Lucasfilms in 2012, 21st Century Fox in 2019. Plus, in 2016, they opened Disney's first theme park in mainland China. 
and then they launched the Disney Plus streaming service in November 2019 and ESPN Plus in 2018. That's pretty impressive. But I've got to say, the thing that really blew me away was when he was talking about this in a video. We'll put the link on our website to this video. Um, but it was part of a larger article. And he was saying that actually he he sort of developed a, a friendship with Steve Jobs. And that is what enabled him to gain his trust so that he would sell him Pixar because Steve Jobs was involved in, in the development of Pixar and the founding of Pixar, um, and he wouldn't have just trusted it to anybody. He had the majority shareholding, didn't he, I think? He had over 50%. So it was quite important that mm. Bob Iger made a good impression, and clearly mm. he did. And that doesn't come across when you just read the text there, but when he was talking about it, and he's also written a book about it as well, then I think that really helps you to understand why he's such a good leader, as well as what, they've won loads of awards. <laughs> what Talking about his leadership style, did you unearth anything about how he leads? Because very often we, we talk about these people and it's hard to get into the nitty gritty of how they've taken people with them on such a massive journey as this. Um, did you unearth anything about how he's done it well it's quite easy to do to be fair because he's written a book <laughs> it's oh called, okay yeah so um at uh, the end of last year he wrote a book called the ride of a lifetime lessons learned from 15 years as ceo of the walt disney company and in that book he outlined 10 core principles so if you look around that period when the the book was published there are a lot of articles that expand on some of his thoughts in the book. A lot of the interviews and videos that are out there are talking about it. Uh, but this one that I um, picked up on was on the Forbes website by a lady called Stephanie Denning. And basically, she said she'd had enough of reading these sorts of books because they've all got the same sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and she felt she was a bit jaded from reading all of these CEOs had written about how wonderful they are. But she said she liked this book because the things he wrote about were refreshing. For example, he, he you know, brought optimism to it. Um, and what was um, especially compelling for her was how his leadership style was meaningful to the execution of the Disney strategy. He clearly was a key part of this strategy and he set a clear growth strategy for it. Quite simple. Increase the amount of high quality branded content they create. Advance technologically in their ability to create more compelling products and deliver them and to grow globally. Globally, sorry. What he was able to do was not only set those targets, he was able to lead the company so that it actually executed those plans. And that's really important. And, and Stephanie goes on to say, essentially, I'm paraphrasing here, but anybody could write a strategy. It takes a good leader to help the company execute. to execute that strategy. And he has indeed done that. Yeah, he... Uh I mean, he, he he clearly doesn't mind getting his, you know, rolling up his sleeves and getting stuck in. I came across four, he, he was interviewed by um, Oprah um, as part of his book promotion. So, um, so yeah, I think it's all joined together. However, um, she, she, when she asked him, you know, how do you do it all? He said, well, I break my job down into four key tasks. The first is the must do's. So he said, you know, you've got to go to meetings you, you, you've got to make phone calls. 
Um, and he knows that if, instead of avoiding meeting with his staff, he tries to meet with them at least once a week face to face so that they know what he's expecting and what he's thinking, and then they can crack on and do it. He's not afraid of making big decisions. Uh, he recognizes that if you're gonna if you're gonna move things forward, it's the big decisions that will help. Yeah, he, he mentions that in the article I read, which is basically a, a lot of companies are fearful of the change and you've got to have the courage to go through that. And he says his optimistic outlook helps him to push through that fear and to see the opportunity on the other side of it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, yeah, I think that's, and he's quite right in doing that. The um, the third one that he mentions, I, I quite like, is make a difference. So he's very clear about where he can add value and where he's just meddling. Um, so if he believes that he can make a difference, he will get involved. Otherwise, he'll leave it to the rest of his team. And also, I have to, um, I have to mention this one, he, have fun. He says, you know, you've got to you've got to you've got to enjoy what you're doing. If you're not enjoying it, then what's the point? And in an interview that I saw, he said he does. He's standing down in 2021 because he doesn't he's standing down now because he doesn't want to run the company anymore. And he's standing down in 2021 because that's the end of his tenure. And that's that's him done, you know, and that's great to know that much about what you do. You're talking about having fun. I watched a very short trailer. Have you seen this series of online courses called Masterclass? They're all over social media with their promotions, or maybe they just notice that I'm a good target. And they've got a, a lot of really good people that do masterclasses. For example, Neil Gaiman does a writing masterclass. You know, so the actual people with those skills doing the, the courses. And um, Bob Iger does one on leadership skills. And uh, so there's short trailers on YouTube and, and it's just a, what, a minute and a half long. And in that space, I felt I got a sense of who he was, but his humour just shone through. And I thought, actually, he comes across as a nice guy. If you can do that in a minute and a half, I think that's pretty impressive. He's not going to overtake Ernesto Soroli, is he? Well, he's got a twinkle in his eye, I've got to say. <laughs> So that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you for listening to us on Callan FM. We'll be back next week with the business community with news, views and reviews from the world of business. You've been listening to the business community with me, Heather Noble. And me, Tracy Jones. Join us next week for more news, views and reviews from the world of business. 